0: Some of you guys know this uh, if you've been here a while, but there are all those Sundays where I think I should just stay seated after, after a song, and that was, that was one of them. Every once in a while. Uh, thanks a ton, guys, for that. Really, really great job. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church again. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, so if you're visiting, welcome. We're glad you're here to uh, learn about Jesus with us today through Matthew. Uh, Matthew is one of the books of the Bible, the first book of the New Testament. And we're about halfway through our series on it. We've been in about it a year since last December, and I think we have about a year to go. 28 chapters, and we're in chapter 14 now, so I guess we're about halfway there. And uh, we're going to look at this idea. The subtitle today is uh, Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom. So we've broken down Matthew, big book. It's helpful to do this sometimes, to break down a bigger book like this into smaller subsections just for uh, clarity and to know where we're headed and, and to make it a little bit more manageable, I think, in terms of um, understanding what is going on in these sections of the, of the gospel or the letter, whatever we're looking at. The section we've been in for a while and we'll still be in, I think all the way through chapter 25. So it's the main chunk of the book is declaring and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom. So declaring the fact that Jesus has been doing this, declaring, talking about the fact that he is here. He has arrived to save the world from its sin. He's going to do that on the cross. We're still pre-cross here, pre-empty tomb. Everything in the book's about that though. It's heading that way. So he's declaring the fact the kingdom of God is here. He's about to save. He is saving. He's, he's demonstrating that, declaring that it's kind of here. It's near. It's at hand. These are words the Bible uses elsewhere to describe the nature of the kingdom before the cross happens, before he dies for the sins of the world. So he's doing that. It's at hand. But it's not fully here yet. So in this intermediary time, middle time between the Old Testament and this time after his birth. He was born in the manger, born of a virgin. Growing up, his ministry begins. All this is a bit of an in-between of the times kind of thing. So the New Testament isn't really fully here yet until the cross. So he's declaring that that's the case. I'm fulfilling the Old Testament. I'm here to save. But he's also demonstrating it. So a lot of what Jesus is doing is not just speaking. He's demonstrating the fact. For example, when he heals a leper, he's demonstrating that in about a year and a half or so, He's going to go to a cross, walk the road, go to a cross, carry a cross, die on a cross for our sins among criminals. He's going to heal spiritual lepers from their sins. But God works in that. We're going to see this today as well. So it's a bit of a prep for how to look at Matthew 14, 1 to 12 today. God loves doing that. The whole of Bible is built around physical to spiritual dynamic. God demonstrates things physically and fulfills them in spiritual manners, in greater levels. And Jesus is that ultimate greater thing. Last week talked about Christ being the new thing over and against the old thing, old ways of preparation. He is the new fulfilled reality here. Uh, fulfilling all of God's promises all the way throughout history. He's this final yes. Uh, I am here. God is here to save and set up his kingdom. So I say all this to give you guys a little bit of a heads up if you're new to Hiawatha on the, where we are in Matthew and uh, what Christ has basically been doing here. It's a really uh, short synopsis. But also to let you guys know that today is a bit more about demonstrating. So Christ has been declaring the kingdom and demonstrating it Today's a bit more about demonstrating. You'll see what I mean uh, as, we, as we go along today. Uh, we're going to look at uh, John the Baptist's beheading uh, is the topic today. Just calling it uh, John's beheading. So as I said, first service, it's just a great passage to kind of cozy up to with a cup of coffee and just enjoy watching uh, this guy get his head cut off and served on a platter to the woman who asked for it. So exciting. That's actually a great passage. Uh, and I, I loved looking at it first service. It's going to be great here. So, a couple of words on John the Baptist, if that's a new character uh, to you. John the Baptist is the guy who prepared the way for Jesus Christ, quite simply. He comes up earlier in Matthew and some other gospel accounts in the New Testament as well. In chapter 3 of Matthew, uh, John comes up. He's a bit of a peer uh, with Christ in terms of age. Uh, and he was a prophet figure who pointed the way to Jesus and prepared his way by preaching and baptizing people. It's important to know though that John here is not baptizing people in the same way that we baptize people as Christians today. So what would later become Christian baptism is not what John is doing. John is baptizing people as a preparatory thing and basically saying, just wash your hearts, prepare your hearts, set the stage in your own life for what God's about to do in history by coming in form of a human being and dying in your place. It's basically what's being either flat out said or uh, demonstrated by a baptism of repentance and, and preparation But there's a difference between being baptized as a preparation for Christ and being baptized into Christ. It's very different. And we see that actually in the book of Acts later after this in the New Testament where there's some people that have been baptized by John the Baptist who become Christians, who believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins but then are not baptized yet into Christ as Christians. And for the church that's a problem. So they sent people there to go and and talk more about the gospel and actually baptize them into Christ. Uh, And so that, just to as an example of how the two uh, are distinguished here. Anyway, but he is is in that way a prophet, a pointer to the Messiah. Some of his most important words are in Matthew 3.11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So here again, we get a little bit of an idea, um, even though uh, John's not talking about later water baptism, just this idea of how Jesus' baptism will be greater. With the Holy Spirit and with fire, but John's is preparatory and resembles later baptism, but is just preparatory in a shadow of it. So, John then uh, ministers here. We don't hear much about him after chapter 3. It's one, a little part comes up in Matthew where we see he's in prison and he asks, uh, he sends some of his disciples to go and ask Jesus, Are you really the Messiah? Uh, uh, Because all these things I hear you're doing, it's not quite matching up with what I perceived or thought the prophets were predicting and all that. So, we talked about that a few weeks ago. And then we have a gap, and then he comes up today, and that's it. And today, uh, we, so we know he's later imprisoned by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was Herod the Great's son. So Herod the Great, we read about earlier in Matthew, died, as we know, read about that. Herod Antipas is one of the four sons of Herod the Great, who's really now over a fourth of what Herod had in whole. Uh, so he's called the Tetrarch here in uh, Matthew 14 because he had a fourth of the kingdom. His other sons had other, the other three uh, parts. So Herod Antipas ruling over the Galilean region, which brings us up to today's passage, uh, the story of uh, John's death, who again imprisoned uh, underneath Herod. So let's read Matthew 14 uh, in its entirety to begin, and we'll come back and unpack some of this. Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother's Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be, to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. All right, uh, a couple words on this, just big picture thoughts uh, before I get into it, and I'll explain my approach today here in a moment. But um, we should be, if you've been here for maybe even just several weeks, but especially uh, since the beginning of Matthew, if you've read the book yourself. At this point in the narrative, we should be counting at this point how many times in Matthew rejection, the theme of rejection, occurs. Even just last week we talked about it in terms of family rejecting the messengers of God and Jesus himself is rejected by his nuclear, physical family. But it comes up all over the place. He's plotted against at this point the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, want him dead. They're already plotting to kill him. It's already well in motion. Many people are rejecting his message, just offended who are following him for a little bit, but when he says something too difficult, they leave and never listen to him again for the rest of their lives. Just lots of rejection, widespread rejection of Christ primarily, but also there's just greater ideas we're seeing here today, and I'll come to this in a minute, of how people who are associated with Christ also suffer. Christ promises that. If you believe in me, if you're part of me, if you're in me, then you'll, and I'm in you, then you will suffer because the world will always continue to reject me, its creator. And so Christians have the Christ in them. And so when they preach about the Christ, the world's actually rejecting him through or by means of uh, the Christian messenger. That comes up again here in a little bit. But it's a major, major theme. So when you think of the gospel, we can ask this ourselves as well. When you think about the gospel accounts of the New Testament, besides Jesus himself, what's the first thing you think of? Like when someone says, think about the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and just the overall thing there. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Is it rejection? If it's not, it should be. That's one of the primary things you see in the, book of the, gospel, or the books, four books of the Gospels is rejection in a widespread manner. Far more than you see Jesus talking about love and administering to the outcast and the poor and demonstrating that. And that's very, very important, don't get me wrong. But far more than that, in a quantitative manner, you see passages like what we just read. Strange passages like this of widespread rejection happening. As the kingdom of God's coming into the world, widespread reception and widespread rejection of that, of that message. So and I love that this is in the, in the Gospels, that passages like this are thrown in because I think what it does is it protects us from a theology of self so that we're, we're protected from reading passages or reading the whole of the Gospels and thinking, this is really about me and what I should do with my life. Because if you think that, you have a very hard, you have a very hard task in front of you in terms of how to interpret something like this or understand why in the world this is here at all. This is just narrative. There's no command here. This is just descriptive of the kingdom of God spread into the world and this kind of thing. People getting their head cuts off as well uh, in association with it. So I think what it does is it protects us and guards us against theological fluffiness and reminds us that this is about God. This is not about us. It's about him doing something in the world and de- declaring that and demonstrating that as well uh, through, the, through the primary theme of rejection. So the rejection of God's sent ones, his redeemers, this is a big thing we looked at last week as well, so I'm talking about the whole of the Bible here, is central to the reason why Jesus came into the world. So he, here's the big point. We have to let stories like this in Matthew 14 inform our understanding of the mission of God. So if Jesus just came into the world and all he did was love people, this is, this is the presupposition a lot of people have about the Gospels, is he's just coming into the world to teach happy, easy-to-apply truths about getting along. But again, the reality is that hardly ever comes up at all. Not that it's not important, but in terms of a quantitative analysis of both of these things, this is the, we see much more of stuff like this happening than we do that. So if that's the case, we have, to, we have to allow passages, narratives, stories like this inform our understanding of who Jesus is, why he came into the world, what the kingdom of God is, what the mission of God is in the world. And that's what that's, that's what we're going to look at today from two different angles. And the latter one's most important. We'll get to that in a bit. Uh, but I want to talk about it. And I've done this a couple of times already in Matthew. So if you've been here, this is a familiar thing. If you're not, super important. I think a great way to read a lot of narrative in the Bible, Old Testament too, in a lot of these narrative sections in the Gospels as well. But we're going to look at the passage from the human perspective and the divine perspective today. Uh, the human side says, what does this passage say about us? What does it challenge us with? What does it call us to? And from a distinctly Christian perspective, what does it say about the Christian experience of salvation? That's going to be one question today. That's the first thing we'll look at. The second side is, what does this passage say about Jesus? What does John the Baptist getting his head cut off and served on a platter to this woman who asked for it, Herodias, what does that say about Jesus Christ and the gospel? That'll be the second question. Everything's about that, by the way, too. That is our... That is our uh, our interpretational methodology here with the book, and because that's the way the Bible reads itself, it always approaches a passage. And a great example: this is the way the New Testament reads the Old Testament. It always has Christ in His gospel in mind. It always asks, "Where is Jesus here? Where is the experience of the church underneath God's saving agenda? Uh, where is the incarnation? Where's the sacrifice of Christ? Where's the gospel here beforehand? And we're still beforehand, right? We're still before the cross here. And so that's the same. That's the same question: How is the story being? being built ahead to uh, that ultimate climax event, which is where God dies in a cross for us, ruins sinners uh, and, and saves us from, from death itself as well. All right, so those are two perspectives today, human side and divine side. Both are important. Remember, Jesus is both fully human and fully divine as well, calls himself the Word, John 1 does as well. And so it's that we're basically applying that idea of God, of Jesus being both fully God and fully man to the way we read the written Word as well. There's these human dimensions to it, and these more important divine dimensions, but both are really important to approach it. So that's the rationale behind it. All right, we'll start with the human side, the human side of the passage. Basically what uh, this is getting at is the unexpected nature of the kingdom. So I'll summarize a couple of things. This is a big theme so far in Matthew. I'll summarize a couple of things I've been looking at so far in these past several weeks just to remind you guys, catch you up to speed if you haven't been here, but there's been this widespread, unexpected nature of what Jesus is doing type thing going on just across the board with, uh, with the Jews. I've seen that in a number of levels. But remember what Jesus says in one of his parables, the kingdom of God begins like a mustard seed. So he's trying to help people understand this as well. That's not what you expected. It starts very, very small. Like the smallest of seeds then grows into a tree. It does not drop out of heaven like a tree. It starts very small. In other words, it begins with suffering, then proceeds to glory. It begins with rejection and suffering and death, then it moves to the empty tomb in Jesus' case, in all of our cases, as we, as we anticipate physical body, bodily re, uh, resurrection someday if we are in Him. Then, past that, to the full restoration of all things at His second coming, which we, which we still await. Super important to understand about the kingdom of God start small, gets big. Does not start big. If it started big, it would not benefit us. When the kingdom of God starts small, it starts with suffering, it starts with the unexpected, it starts with Jesus dying on a cross, the, the great unexpected thing about the kingdom. But because of that, it benefits us. Like we sang about earlier, and I think Peter talked about as well with one of the songs. We don't have to fear our banishment for God anymore because the merits of our great high priest, the work of our great high priest makes that possible. So that's the idea with the kingdom of God. John's, John's suffering here then in Matthew 14 is a reminder of the left side of, the, of this, uh, these progressions. John's suffering reminds us this is how the kingdom of God comes into the world. It starts small, It starts in a a lot of ways, in many and varied ways, with suffering. And here's the key. God's people are big participators in this type of kingdom spreading. So in in a big grandiose sense, it starts with the cross, starts with God dying in our place. So we'll come to more of that in a bit. But on this human side of things, we are participators in that suffering as well. This is what the Bible teaches. We're part of the kingdom, and we're sharing in the small to big. We're sharing in the suffering to glory. We participate in that drama, that extension from, that, from small to big and from lesser to fuller that Christ himself was the ultimate realization of. In Acts 14.22, Paul and Barnabas, uh, two early Christian missionaries, uh, Paul wrote half the New Testament as well, the, the Apostle Paul, returned to Antioch, it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. See, that last phrase there is most important. Through many tribulations or suffering, we must enter the kingdom of God. So what I want to do for a few minutes is unpack, spin off on that last phrase a bit. Through many sufferings, through tribulation, we enter the kingdom. And ask just the question, what does that mean? I think there's three things primarily. The first two kind of boil down into one. But three big things the Bible talks about when it talks about Christians associating with suffering as they're being saved. So just to be really clear here, none of this is saying... Do all of this, then God will look upon you favorably and save you. It's saying God saves you by grace alone through faith. As he's saving you and after he saves you, this is indicative of the Christian experience. See how different that is? Let's make sure that's clear. Otherwise, this is going to sound very moralistic, very religious, and it never is intended to be that. But in Matthew five twenty nine, 29, uh, Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members then that your whole body be thrown into hell. So what Jesus is saying here, this is indicative of people who are saved, who are in the kingdom. They're saved in order to do this. They are responsive to the fact that Jesus has saved them from their sins, actually done that. And then he's given them the power of the Holy Spirit to actually pluck out sin from their bodies and kill it and slay it and be defensive and offensive against it and defensive against, take defensive measures as well. Uh, by, you know, in a metaphorical sense, gouging out eyes and cutting off hands. So basically, it's a picture of killing sin. It's a picture of dying to self, closely aligned with the idea of repentance or turning away from the old and taking up our cross. The Bible has a lot of metaphors given over to that, but it basically says, when Christ calls someone to himself, he says, come and die. Your old self's dying, and I'm raising up a new you in myself. You're associating with my resurrection. But that's that tricky nature, that, duality there that Christians wrestle with. It's almost like a split personality thing. You know, we have the old self going on and we have this new self in Christ that's really there in our lives. And they fight against each other a lot in our life. And it's a painful process. But the Bible says, realize that's happening, turn away from the old and embrace Jesus Christ that he loves you and he's died for your sins every single day of your life. And as you do that, it's going to be gloriously joyful, but incredibly painful at the same time. I think one picture of this biblically we get that I think is helpful is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11. Right in that passage it says that he calls into the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. And he came out, he walked up out, and he still had bandages on his body. And it says after that they clean him up and they take the bandages off. But it's basically a three-step process. He's woken from death. He walks out of the tomb still covered in bandages and then after that, he gets cleaned up and the bandages are taken off. I think that's actually really indicative of the Christian experience because we're really all of us in that middle portion right now. We're not fully clean, fully washed yet. We're, wrote, we're risen from the dead, which we've done nothing to earn. God, If you're a Christian, God has called into your life and said, rise. I've made that possible now because I've beaten death and I've taken your sins away. By grace, I'm saving you. So if, all, if you're a Christian, you've come out of the tomb, but we still have bandages on us. And it's a painful process to de-bandage. I mean, these things weigh like a lot of weight. It's been a painful process to de-bandage for Lazarus to do, so physically. But in a spiritual sense, that's the case for us as well. We're we're saved by grace and called to live as though we're actually raised from the dead. Like we have the power of the resurrection in our lives right now. So Paul says things like, you're slave to righteousness. Mortify sin or kill sin in the flesh. Go to war against it. Those things are difficult and, and cost us something. And in that way, are reflective of Acts 14.22, 20, which says, through many sufferings we enter the kingdom of God. So saved by grace, but this process of salvation looks very painful and is very painful, very, very joyful and incredible, but also uh, difficult at the, at the same time. Sometimes very difficult. Acts, uh, actually this is, uh, that's the wrong reference there. It's uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.31. Paul just says, I die every day. Not literally, of course. He's just saying, I basically die. I suffer and I go through tribulation every day for the sake of the church. A little part of me is lost because I deny it. I say other people are more important and God is even more important than them. And in that way, I live my life. And in that way, I die. And in that way, I'm, I'm, I'm entering the kingdom, not saving myself, but God has saved me in order to live this way, to, to start small and get big and to go from suffering to glory. Glory still awaits. We have glory now, yes, in part spiritually, but we await that full physical realization of it as well. Secondly, uh, which is related, uh, is this idea of humbling ourselves and considering other people better. Philippians 2 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So again, uh, this is Paul speaking here, but this is a greater idea. The idea is this is going to hurt to do this, right? Just think about your life and think Am I humbling myself? And do I actually consider other people better than myself every day? You know, Paul just says, Every day, do nothing from selfish ambition, period. Every day, consider everyone better than you. period. It's like impossible, right? But strive after it, still, is The idea with, with the Christ because Christ has done all of these things fully on the cross, and he's alive in us. That's the idea. Again, we're not saved by how well we do this. we're saved in order to do it. We saying, live consistently with the fact that your resurrected self values these things. Your old self doesn't, and you're constantly warring against it. But Christ has made you alive in himself, and this is, this is you. No matter how you feel, this is you right now. That's how the Bible speaks. Feelings aside, the fact is, this is you in Christ if you believed in him. So live consistently with that. But again, this is going to cost you something, right? It's going to cost a lot. It's going to be a painful process. It's going to deny you a little bit of fame and recognition or comfort or whatever it is. But this is the way of Christ. This is the way that he enabled us to all live and he accomplished for us fully uh, again, on the cross. It's a type of tribulation. In a lot of ways, I think it cuts deeper than physical pain, too, uh, in, in a lot of ways. Okay, that's the first two things. Uh, the third thing is what John is really experiencing here. This, this is a, a greater theology of Christian suffering and entering the kingdom by tribulation we're talking about, but the big thing John is experiencing here is persecution, right? He told He's basically preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's been doing that. He baptized Christ. He and all of that, he falls to the wayside a little bit here, but it's basically saying that the big thing that put him in prison was just, you can't, it's, it's not lawful for you to sleep with your sister-in-law, King Herod, and King Herod freaked out and put him in prison and later kills him for it. And so that's, that's, what, that's the subtext of, of all of this, and, and in light of that, basically the bigger thing is persecution's happening, and it happens to the people of God, period. So two levels to this. One, it just happens. We're not going to talk a lot about that today. It's come up in, uh, not too long ago in past sermons, so I'm not going to unpack that too much here, but... Jesus says, just flat out, if you're in me and I'm in you, you will be persecuted. If you're a part of the kingdom, if you believe in the gospel, because I was, he says. This is the way the Bible thinks. That there's, there's no separation between Jesus and his people anymore. I mean, in one sense there is, but he's so close that in one sense there's not. Like he's one flesh with us, the Bible says. He uses wedding imagery. Like husband and wife are one flesh, so it is with the ultimate bridegroom and his people, who are a bride, the type of bride. Church is a type of bride. So we will be persecuted. A lot of you guys are going through persecution. I know this because you tell me, you write it on your cards. I know that's happening. A lot of persecution happening in the workplace with neighbors, that people are sharing the gospel with. And one encouraging note to that is Jesus acknowledges that to deaden your anxiety over it because he just says it's going to happen. Like if you don't know, expect it's going to happen, you don't expect that, then it's going to, be, it's going to freak you out. It's going to cause a lot of anxiety and fear when it happens. But Jesus says, actually, you should, you should expect it to happen. You should expect to suffer when he preached the gospel of the kingdom. Because I did. So that's the first thing. It's just going to happen. But what I want to spend a little bit more time on is this is another biblical teaching here too. That suffering and persecution in particular actually helps advance God's kingdom around the world. Persecution actually is a good thing that it helps advance God's kingdom. That's huge to understand around the world. Christians have a very distinct and clear perspective on why suffering exists in the world. This is one angle on it. This is a whole other thing here, but one angle on it is uh, they actually see it as a God-given and God-used evil that's used for a greater good. And their ground for this is the cross. Remember, this is a big thing we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We know that God uses evil for good because of the cross. There's no greater evil than the cross, no greater abomination, no greater darkness, no greater injustice than God dying in a cursed manner On a tree among criminals. There's never been that. The Bible teaches that. And there's no greater good either, because the greatest good came out of that. So a couple weeks ago I talked about them being the bookends of history, in terms of of us understanding good and evil, and/or just blessing and discomfort, or however you want to frame that. He's got the bookends, the greatest evil he's experienced, and the greatest good he's brought out of that greatest evil. So if that's the case, this is how Christians then, this is how the Bible writes itself, how Christians should think. If that's the case, how much more, in a sense, will he use my lesser suffering, the lesser evils in my life to bring about good, whether I see it tomorrow or 10 years from now or never? Christians trust and have a little bit of a release from anxiety in that because that's that's the type of God that we serve. He intends, like Genesis 50-20 says, he intends that evil for good or he brings good out of it. He brings light out of darkness all the time. Like a creation, he brought light, he spoke light and light came out of the darkness. In the same way, Christ, the light of the world. He spoke that in history and he brought it out of evil, out of darkness. So persecution then, in the same manner, like, like it happens at the cross, when the church is pressed down by the thumb of persecution, whatever that looks like in your life right now, whatever it's looked like in church history ever, when it happens in a widespread manner, in general, it's a, real, it's a really powerful thing because God brings a lot of life out of it. The cross is being embodied. When the church is persecuted. It's basically, when the church is persecuted, it's basically like Christ is suffering again. Because we're the body of Christ. When we're persecuted, Christ is being persecuted again. And so, if that's the case, we look back to the cross, we should expect more life. Maybe not in the exact same manner, but more opportunity to preach the gospel. At least a demonstration of Jesus dying on the cross again for sins. This time, just the church. So, that's what's happening. That's what's being demonstrated. And that's that's why, actually, I have a a quote here from uh, Pastor Doug Wilson looking back a couple, couple of millennia here to the early church, he once said that a great reformation and revival, or the kingdom of God will spread, in other words, the church will be built up. It will happen the same way the early Christians conquered Rome. Their program of conquest, however, consisted largely of two elements, preaching the gospel and being eaten by lions, a strategy that has not yet captured the imagination of the contemporary church. That's what the church did. And the church was on, it expanded like brush fire on the heels of preaching and persecution. And it happens today as well. Not that it can't spread through comfort, and it totally does. It's spreading around this nation. We're basically, in a lot of ways, a a nation or culture of comfort, much more than it was 2,000 years ago for this first church being eaten by lions and all of that. However, there's still a lot of persecution, but still, relative to that, God can do that and does, for sure. But... In general, you look throughout history and even today, this is why a lot of uh, you know, house church, underground church, church leaders in persecuted areas of the world will say, uh, you can go to uh, persecutedchurch.org uh, as well for this. Voice of the Martyrs uh, is, is a great reference uh, for this if you're interested. But you know, a lot of uh, church leaders will say, don't pray the persecution stops. Pray for more suffering. Because we've seen this one-to-one correlation between how much the church is threatened and how much the church explodes and again, this is not, should not be a surprise for us because the center of our belief system is a God that takes pain and makes glory out of it. So why wouldn't we expect that to happen to the body of Christ, the church, now? Persecution and suffering can bring a lot of good in our individual lives on a micro level. On a macro level in general, historically, it's done, God has just decided in his great infinite wisdom, again, because of the cross ultimately, but in his great infinite wisdom to, to use it and, and to give rationale for it. So, Anyway, so Christians know this because we know the gospel. It's not a surprise. Christians know the gospel. We know that our salvation grew through the suffering of Jesus Christ. It grew. And so we look at persecution and say, this is an opportunity. It's fine to pray against it for sure and to pray for relief. It's not a bad prayer. It's just bigger than that. There's a better prayer than that. And that God use seasons of comfort and use seasons of persecution. Use them both. Whatever you give, just receive. And say, there's someone bigger at work here than just random chance. Whatever happens, you cannot stop the tidal wave of the kingdom of God spreading around the world. The more you do this, the more it just squeezes out. It just goes everywhere. And it happens all throughout history. And so the church then takes a lot of comfort. Generally, this is my encouragement for you guys too because some of you may have never heard that. In general, I'm saying this is a biblical concept and the church has taken refuge in this. But maybe you don't. Maybe you don't take refuge in that fact. But the Bible encourages us in this and says you can't stop God, you can't thwart his plans Remember the God you worship and the God of the Bible. Remember what he's like. He takes darkness and makes light. He's a master at it. And you're no exception. Your life's not going to be an exception. You're not going to be an exception to that. Never. He's too big for that. And the church in general will never be persecuted uh, into not existing. Rather, God will use that uh, to spread it even more. All right, here's the point, though. Those are three things going back to uh, Acts 14, 22, Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom. Just just describing uh, what is normal for the Christian salvation experience. Those are three major ones. But here's the point. Suffering, in all the ways we just talked about, is normative. And yes, a major repeated theme in Matthew for a reason. John here in Matthew 14 is a picture of a New Testament Christian preaching and being persecuted for it by people who were offended by the message. Right? How many times does that happen? Every day, everywhere, right? Right? He's basically saying this is a a type or a forerunner of preaching good news and, and, and proclaiming the word of God in general and being persecuted by people who are offended by what it means for their lives and just the nature of the message itself. So to be then, to enter the kingdom through tribulation or to be a citizen of that kingdom, this is probably what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, is we preach good news and many times in life we suffer to varying degrees, but we will suffer. Proclaim the gospel and live it out. Die every day, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. Put others first. Kill sin. I mean, All those things are what, what it means not to, to be saved, but to be saved in order to do them. They're indicative of the Christian life and they're part of what it means to work out salvation on a daily basis. So if any of those ring a bell or strike a chord, then consider that the Holy Spirit in your life, even presently here. Just saying, this is, this is what it means to be a citizen. Are you dying every day? Is every day a little bit of you just die in terms of how you put other people before yourself or in how you humble yourselves before the cross? Or preaching the gospel to the point where you're persecuted and thought stupid and passed over for a job promotion because of, which happens every day. Happens right here at Hiawatha uh, more than you think. All right, so that's, that's the first side. The human side of this basically then is just saying John is a picture of us. John the Baptist and what he's going through and the, and the circumstances surrounding what he's going through is just indicative of entering the kingdom through suffering. It just starts small and it gets big. We've got to understand the nature of that or we will not be able to categorize suffering. It will only bring despair. If you don't have the understanding of the kingdom of God in reality, it will only lead to despair. If you have the right understanding of the kingdom of God and how Jesus d- describes it, we'll still, we'll still have despair sometimes, but, but at least we'll have a grounding you know, for... Uh, for understanding why it exists at all. understand Understanding this is, this is what Christ went through. This is, he's defining reality here, Christ did, by dying on a cross and rising again three days later. That's, that's descriptive now of what I'm going through in a, in a mini kind of way. All right, that's the first thing then, the human side, the unexpected nature of the kingdom and really getting a, a fresh taste for that through the narrative of Matthew 14. The second side of this, to switch gears a bit, is the divine side of the passage. And what I mean by that is, how does John prepare the way for Christ in in today's passage? I said before that um, basically, that's who John the Baptist was, is he, through baptism and preaching, he prepared the way for Christ. But what we learn in Matthew 14 is, that's not the only way he prepared the way for Christ. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus Christ by also resembling him. And in today's case, His death, the circumstances surrounding his death and God's sovereign design, there are many similarities between, maybe some of you guys noticed this as we read it the first time, many similarities between the circumstances surrounding John the Baptist's death and the circumstances surrounding Jesus' death, which we'll come to later in the story, but I will summarize today to help you guys see these correlations between the two. So, the initial graph then, just to help you guys understand the main characters of both and to make these uh, connections, in Matthew 14, we have John the Baptist. Herod Antipas, Herodias, and her daughter, and the disciples of John. The correlation then between the two, so, you know, the way that they play out a little bit later in the story, think about the left side of the graph as the shadow and the right side as the reality that's casting that shadow a little bit backwards into the story. Or the left side, if you want, as the foreshadowing of the latter event. So, uh, Jesus then resembles John. Pilate, the governor, Roman governor who has Jesus on trial and who questions him, is resembling uh, Herod Antipas. The Jewish leaders and the crowds uh, who are uh, screaming for the head of Jesus basically and also uh, manipulating Pilate resemble Herodias and her daughter. And the disciples of John and disciples of Jesus are just main players here as, as well which I'll come to in a little bit. Not quite as, as significant as the first uh, three. So with this in mind, let me go back and explain some of these correlations. You can see them a little bit more clearly. It's, it's Striking, actually, how similar that they are, and again, this is the reason Jesus is basically saying here, and the way this is written into into history, into the Word of God, is to demonstrate the Gospel of Christ beforehand, to demonstrate the trial of Christ beforehand, the circumstances around Jesus beforehand. That we ultimately see the trajectory of Matthew fourteen is Christ, and not really just John or us or anybody else, but ultimately Christ. All right, first thing is uh, going back to John and Jesus. Both John the Baptist and Jesus are similar. And that they're condemned as prophets specifically for things that they say, teachings that are too hard to receive. So Matthew 14, again, John says, don't sleep with your sister-in-law. It's unlawful. He's persecuted for that as a prophet. In Matthew 26, though, we could basically say anything Jesus has said. He's already being plotted against at this point in the, in the Gospels. But a couple of later things that he says that he's you know, held to account on, uh, on his trial are Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days, making him divine as well as some good commentary on the nature, the true nature of the temple there being his own body. Then, a little bit later, after Jesus called himself the Son of God, the high priest tore his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy. And after that, he says, What more evidence do we need to condemn him to death? So again, similarities there in terms of just being a prophet and being condemned unjustly. I'll mention that a little bit later here as well. But specifically for things that they say, things that they teach about the kingdom of God or um, what's right and what's wrong, what salvation is, who Christ is, things like that. All right, secondly, uh, we're connecting Herodias here and daughter to a degree, but Herodias, Philip's wife, and the Jews, on the other hand, both manipulate the circumstance. So in uh, Matthew 14... As we read this morning, prompted by her mother, the daughter of Herodias said, give me the head of John the Baptist here in a platter. So remember that Herod does not want to kill him. We'll see that here in a second as well. But Herod doesn't want to kill him. But it's the the cunning nature of Herodias working behind the scenes and persuading her daughter that figures out a way to get get past that, uh, that whole thing. Matthew 27 and John 19, it's similar. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And then in John 19, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king, like Jesus did, opposes Caesar. So in both cases, there is manipulation happening. There's Pilate and Herod not wanting to kill their respective prophets. But there's manipulation behind the scene in the former case of Herodias, and the latter case, the Jews and the crowds to ask for something. Uh, literally, and to uh, get past this uh, initial not wanting to do this uh, that's, you know, embodied by the two uh, rulers there. Okay, third thing, Herod and Pilate were initially unwilling. Again, it's related, but initially unwilling to give the order of execution, but ended up acquiescing because the influence of others. So, in Matthew 14, he feared people. Uh, In verse 9 there, he was sorry because of his oaths, and because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given it's similar to jesus's story in matthew 27 mark 15 in pilate's case when he saw that a riot was beginning so people were in an uproar over this he took water washed his hands before the crowd and, and said crucify him and again in mark 15 here in the bottom so pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd very similar to because of his oath, because of his guests uh, in the former story but here with pilate he delivered jesus over uh, to be crucified and then again, both Herod and Pilate were sorry. You just get this idea that Herod and Pilate just don't want to do this. That in Herod's case, he's sorry. In Pilate's case, he's, he's wanting to say, What evil has he done here on the bottom? And then ultimately, like, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He recognizes his innocence. He's saying, What evil? He keeps questioning. What, what evil has this man done? I'll give you Bar- 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 Barabbas. He's basically saying, If I offer this recognized criminal, uh, Barabbas, they're going to, and, and Jesus, get this, this ritual where once a year they'd let someone free. They're going to let Jesus free because he's innocent, right? But they actually go backwards on that and choose Barabbas. But anyway, what evil has he done? And they're on the top. When Pilate heard that Jesus called himself the Son of God, he was even more afraid. Matthew 14, Herod was was sorry. So they were both sorry, hesitant, and afraid. Then after they're killed, uh, disciples in both stories carry the bodies away. That's the fifth thing. So in uh, John's case, his disciples carry the body away. And in Jesus' case, his disciples, uh, Joseph Arimathea in particular, Uh, carry the body away and bury it, which is also uh, similar. There are other things, too, like beheading and crucifixion, both being Roman customs, not Jewish ones. There are other correlations here, too, I could make. But these are the big ones we see here is the main characters resemble one another. The former ones set the stage for the latter ones. So here's the point. Matthew 14, 1 to 12 is about Jesus. It's not really about John the Baptist, ultimately. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not really about John the Baptist, it's about Jesus beforehand, like everything in the Bible. Everything. In the Old Testament and the early parts of the Gospel accounts, everything is about Jesus. It is an adumbration or a vague foreshadowing or a suggestion of the atonement or the cross beforehand. On the one hand, this happened to a man like us. And it's it's typical, like we said before, the human side of things, of the life of all who enter God's kingdom. But on the other hand, in a greater way, this is meant to especially point us ahead in the story to a different Herod, a different Herodias, and a different and better John. In the spirit, really, of how Herod, if you remember in the early part of the story, the chronology is kind of out of whack because he's remembering something. But when he hears about Jesus after he kills John the Baptist, he says, "It's, it's John. He's been raised from the dead, which is also kind of a cool correlation there. But prophetic but he's saying it's 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 john he's been raised from the dead and it's not of course but so he's wrong to make that connection in one sense but not in the sense that he's seen a resemblance between the two right so in the spirit of how herod is seeing a resemblance between the two this is the point the point is to look ahead to the ultimate resurrected christ but before that the suffering christ who would effectively have his head cut off uh for the sake of all who would later believe in him dying in their place in that manner in a resembling manner So, going back to Matthew 14, this is why it's so graphic. This is why it's so bloody, so visceral, so unjust, so uncomfortable, so dark. Because this is what Christ went through for you. This is how we get to the gospel in this passage. You read about John the Baptist? That's bad. That's unjust and dark and visceral. But Christ went through worse for you. He died in a very similar manner, just on the heels of this. Not long. We're going to get there very soon in our series. And we're going to see how he's going to go to a cross and die as an innocent person, as a prophet, in an unjust manner, through a governor similar to King Herod, not wanting to do it at first, but being manipulated by the crowds and find this way around that, ultimately to the cross, but crafting the whole thing. This is what your God has done for you. He's died in this manner for you. So if getting, getting the head cut off is, like, helpful with that. Shouldn't need it. But basically, Jesus had his head cut off. He had something worse happen. He was nailed to a cross and suffered crucifixion, which is a much more torturous way to die than beheading. Beheading was actually very merciful. Crucifixion was not merciful. It was the worst way to die. So that's why the Bible says that God went to die even on a cross. So he didn't just come to die and be beheaded. That's, that's a pretty easy way to die, actually. He came to die in a much more graphic and visceral manner, uh, to, be, to go through excruciating pain on the cross and basically suffocate to death um, and bleed out over a span of six hours. This is what God thinks of you. He loves you in this way. He went to those extremes and those ends to take your sins away. Because we all deserve that and worse, an eternity away from God like that. But God God himself became a human being and went to the cross and died. This is the gospel. This is what we're called to have faith in and trust. This is what Matthew 14 is ultimately about. It's trajecting ahead in the story. And we know... At this point, it's foggy. It's more of a parable. If you're before the cross and seeing this happen, it's a parable. It's kind of unclear. It's foggy. But after the cross, the cross grants clarity. The cross always grants clarity to cryptic passages of the Bible. Well, Let us just be a, a little bit of a lesson and a help for you if you're newer to interpreting the Bible. You ever come, come across a difficult passage to understand? Apply the cross to it as a grid over it. And almost all the time, it becomes very, very clear. Sometimes still tricky <laughs> because they vary but a lot of times it grants a lot of clarity to uh, our interpretive enterprises and endeavors in uh, hermeneutics or interpretation. So these are the kinds of story that I think one thing that Matthew 14 here does as well is it helps us understand that the cross is not an accident because the cross is being depicted before it actually happens. And of course, the whole Testament's about the cross as well, but Matthew 14, right, you know, neatly packaged right here in Matthew Not too far from the passion of the Christ is basically saying that God plans this. Jesus is planning this. It's kind of happening already. Is it an accident? People could say that if you wanted to, but it's, it's hard to argue that. This is actually just randomly happening and lining up so perfectly and neatly here with all these correlations. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer so that he might enact the great rescue plan of God in history. So I think these then, going back to something I started with, uh, I want to make sure this is clear here as well. It's more clear now going through this. I think these are the kinds of stories that those who argue that Jesus just came to teach happier, easier to apply truths and to live a life of emulation, that's all he came to do. Uh, These are the type of passages that people, those people have a hard time interpreting. Right? Because what are they doing? What's this story doing here? If that's all Jesus came to do, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? But if your starting point is not what I just said, but if your starting point is the cross, if your starting point is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and everything in the Bible is about that, and we apply that to a passage like this, it becomes very clear, right? That's what it's about. Everything's about the death of Christ. Everything's about the resurrection of Christ. Everything's about the sufferings of your God for you. That's what he wants us to see over and over and over and over again, because we forget all the time. So we can't pick up our Bible and find a passage that's not about Jesus. It's impossible. We can read it that way, but we're misreading the Bible when we do. If we're faithfully reading it, we're always seeing Christ and the merits of Christ, the merits of our high priest, the work of Christ, ultimately on the cross, whether in a very veiled manner, a very adumbration-type manner, vague foreshadowing-type manner, or in a very clear, crystal-clear manner in a a lot of places in the Bible. But in either case, it's always about him. So Jesus came to do that then. He came to die for your sins, to offend the prideful by showing us that we can't be good enough to save ourselves, to love us, his enemies, to the uttermost by dying a scandalous, torturous death on a cross among criminals for us in a way that John the Baptist typified and set the stage for. So in that way, Jesus is the greater John the Baptist because John the Baptist didn't atone for sins when he died, right? He just died. But when Jesus died, he atoned for the sins of the world. So then you could say, with Acts 14.22 in mind about entering the kingdom through tribulation, Jesus is the ultimate suffering by which we must enter the kingdom. There is no way else to get in. There's no other door than entering by the sufferings of Jesus Christ and saying, I believe it happened in history that that's God's peace-offering branch. He's saying, I'm making peace between me and you, ruined sinners that I can't dwell with now because of sin. I'm making a bridge. This is my my peace offering, Christ himself. Me, I'm the offering. I'm dying for you. I've become one of you to associate as one of you, to advocate as one of you, to die as one of you. See, we can't just say God saves, but he he became one of us to save. That's crucial. That's how God bridges the gap. He didn't just die as God. He became a human being to die as one of us. This is something... No other religion touches. I mean, Christians have the best answer, the most most thorough one for how does a holy God, how is the sin problem taken away? Perfectly. And how does God remain just doing all of that and merciful and loving at the same time? All those things come together perfectly at the cross because it is dealt with, but it's on him. The burden of forgiveness and salvation is on God's shoulders, not yours. So be free of that yoke that maybe some of you have been wearing for years and years and years thinking that Christianity was about you not about God. It's not about you. It's about him. Just believe that. Christians believe, True Christians believe that. He has the burden of salvation and forgiveness and mercy and peace. And, so, and my, my eternal life, it's on him. And what he does, not on you. So take it off your shoulders. Lay it on him. He, he's the ultimate one that does. Isn't that the amazing news? That's the gospel of Christ today for all of us. A lot of you guys know that. Some of you don't. All of us need to be rem- uh, reminded today because we've basically all forgotten since last Sunday, or since yesterday. So, uh, so let's remember that and adore that and cherish that. In fact, that's the first thing in conclusion here I just want to draw us to. Rejoice. Jesus Christ was unjustly condemned to death by sinful men for you. That's what Matthew 14 is about. Jesus Christ was unjustly condemned as an innocent prophet, as the Son of God for you. That's what it points to. Rejoice and be thankful this week of Thanksgiving for that. There's no, there's no better Christian response to the work of God than thankfulness. Because thankfulness is just saying, I've received something, right? I haven't done anything. I've received something as a gift. But if we try to work out our salvation on our own strength, we're not thankful anymore. Uh, we're self-righteous. We are uh, condemning of other people. We're competitive and usually very, very depressed and angry. Secondly, live this truth. Your life is not about you. And that's, I think, a, a great side truth we get with this whole story is that John the Baptist's life resembled Jesus's very clearly, right? And so what it says to us is it's not about, it's not about him. His life was not about him. It's like the most un-American and, and uh, countercultural thing I probably said all morning, right? It's like we hear that all the time, that your life's about you. You're the boss of you. Isn't a mantra of our culture? The Bible says, no, it's not about you at all. If you're married... Your marriage is not about you. It's about Jesus. Get over yourself. It's not about you. There's a greater author orchestrating your life that a lot of ways, unbeknownst to you, in a lot of ways, unbeknownst to you, in a lot of ways, unbeknownst to you. John the Baptist did not understand when the sword was being raised up to cut his head off that he was resembling the death of his Savior just about a year from there. And a lot of times, we won't either. When we suffer, we won't understand how our sufferings resemble Christ maybe in the moment's or maybe over a lifetime, but they do. So here's the thing. Don't think you're an exception to this. If, if God is orchestrating this to happen in John the Baptist's life, he's going to orchestrate your life perfect, perfectly in the way that he intends. You know, for, for better or worse. for Always for the better. But in terms of, like, suffering or not, in terms of comfort or suffering, in both instances, he's the author of that. He's the orchestrator of that. Clearly, he's doing that in John the Baptist's life. Do not think you're an exception. A lot of you probably do. This is just the case with John the Baptist and a few special people in history, but it's not me. I'm more in control of my life. I decide things. It's on my terms that things happen. It's just flat out not what the Bible teaches. And I just be free of that way of thinking. This is hard, yes, to understand. It's hard to submit to a God that's this completely sovereign in control over our lives on the one hand, but that's because we're, we're the kings and gods of our life, right? So you want to make yourself someone angry? Attack their idol, and all of us have the idol of self. When the, when the idol of self's attacked, we get angry and protective, and we go to war for that. And so we know that. When, when we hear stuff like this, and it's hard to hear, it almost always is, uh, to varying degrees, that's, that's because we're prideful, and we're arrogant. And we're, we think in some capacity that it is about us, and we're saving ourselves. But God says, no, I have absolutely everything under control, including your eternal destiny. Rest in that. Have peace in that. And the details of your life, the micro level of your life, like, like we're seeing in John the Baptist's life here as well. Everything's under control. And, and so if you, if you go back to this, then that's the big thing. John's life is not about him, nor is ours. Our life then, just like John's, is to be one big glorious demonstration of a God who bled for humankind. It's part of your job, Christian, is, is to do that. Some of that is out of our control. God will just do it. He'll bring suffering into your life to demonstrate That Christ suffered for the world, just like He did in John's life. Some of that will be out of our power. Some of it's in our power, though, at the same time, with God working through us, of course, but some of it is more of a choice thing. We can choose then, for example, to be generous to somebody to reflect the fact that God is generous. Like John died in a manner similar to how Christ would die and reflected Jesus. We can reflect God's generosity by being generous. That's how the Bible speaks. Love like God loved you on the cross. Be generous like God is generous to you on the cross. Be hospitable like God is hospitable to you on the cross. That's how the Bible speaks. It's, it's rarely just try hard to, to, be, to be humble or to be loving. It's almost always grounding clearly that God has done this first and that's, the, that's what you are to reflect. Reflect it. Rejoice in the gospel and reflect that gospel all your days. Work at it to see that's the case. Don't be surprised when this happens, even outside your power. There's a greater author over your life than you. Praise God. I mean, I just think that all the time is thank God I'm not the author of my life because I'd be in some serious uh, stuff right now. You know, and we, again, we, we still are, but God is good in that and he gives a lot, of, uh, a lot of relief from anxiety in that as well. So again, don't be anxious. Trust God. Pray. Believe. Be thankful for the gospel and, and just know God is in control and especially of, of your salvation. You cannot take that away from him. He's got it like this. All right, let's pray. God, thank you uh, for today and your grace in the gospel according to Matthew 14, 1-12. Thank you that it's just incredibly good news for us. As we remember our Christ, we remember uh, the, the ultimate John the Baptist, the ultimate one who was executed unjustly, but all according to the plan. Matthew 14 reminds us that the cross is a part of the plan of God. It's not a random accident that it resembled so closely the passion narrative of Jesus Christ that would happen soon after that. So. Thank you for pointing us again through a very unique way that nothing else, I mean, there's no other John the Baptist narrative like this anywhere in the Bible. So thank you for uniquely pointing us to the cross today uh, in a passage that uh, maybe many of us didn't really realize was about Jesus at all. God, this is about you. Thank you for orchestrating, authoring, making possible our salvation in the world. Uh, Take us off the throne of our life. Help us there. We can't do it without you. Uh, God we've tried a lot of us have tried and failed I've tried and failed God take us off the throne of our life invade, wreck our lives and that way help us to suffer as we enter the kingdom of God it's a painful but glorious process as we come to the end of ourselves and see you as our all in all God so thank you again for dying for our sins and uh, for being ordered to be crucified by Pilate uh, 2,000 years ago Uh, but God you orchestrating that amazing hallelujah our God has done that for us And we just pray, help us to respond and, and leave here encouraged in grace today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.